Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. Today is it's Monday and welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us. We've got a great live stream here in store for you today. We're going to be talking about the capsized boat off the coast of San Diego that contained um, immigrants that were being smuggled into America. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, and some of the things that he's up to. Uh, talk a little bit also about liberty and um, liberty and freedom as trigger words. That's another topic I want to explore. Plus, I want to talk briefly about housing and schools. And boy, I got a lot going on in this podcast episode. So thanks again for everybody for sitting down here and sharing part of your afternoon with us. You know, we do this every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. And we are live streaming. So, um, but first, I just want to give a big shout out to Mike Ryan. Mike, thanks again for joining me here. It was um, last Wednesday. We had a great conversation talking about the grocery industry and automation and grocery. We talked a lot about what's going on with the grocery stores here in our community around Poway and Rancho Bernardo. And uh, we also talked a lot about Poway development and the housing along Poway Road and kind of share some thoughts on that. That was a great episode. So Mike, thanks for joining us. And for those of you that want to learn more about those topics, I invite you to go back and, and look up last week's episode. I was going to do a podcast on Friday and I ended up not doing it. And it was because I went out to Pahrump, Nevada again. And you might be thinking, what the hell? You've already been to Pahrump, Nevada twice in the last year. And I have. I had gone there previously twice just on a COVID sabbatical just to kind of get out of the house and uh, have like a, a place away from home where I can get some work done and and kind of focus on things. Well, couple, about a month ago or so, uh, Pete Neal asked me, he goes, hey, man, I'm going to go out and race my Corvette Calypso out in Pahrump. You want to join me? And I thought, yeah, let's do it. And so we went out there over the weekend and, you know, uh, it, it was a, it was a lot of fun. We were out there on the Spring Mountain Motor Raceway. And I mean, this is like big time. A lot of people that have these tricked out cars and Pete was out there in his Calypso. What a great event. And we're going to do probably a follow-up podcast about Pete's adventure at Spring Mountain Raceway. Because uh, I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of balls to go out there and race your car um, like at 140 miles an hour on some of these straightaways. Um, he did a hell of a job. But we're going to break that down probably in a separate podcast. But I ended up getting back on Sunday night. And I had a good time. I was there. You know, on Saturday, what did I do? I, I wanted to go watch the Padre game. And, you know, I could have streamed it on my phone and then, you know, shared it on my the big screen on where I was staying. I was staying at this really small Airbnb casita in Pahrump. But I want to do something different. I decided to go out to a casino and they have a sports book there at one of the casinos in Pahrump and get there and put a bet down on the Padres to win. This is this game Saturday night, which they ended up winning. But I had to lay down 175 to win 100. I mean, that was pretty steep odds. But it ended up, you know, I bet 40. I think I walked away with a net, like $22 gain on that bet, which wasn't bad. And then afterwards, um, actually during the game, I wanted to get a drink and the bar wasn't even open in the sports book, you know, because of COVID rules. So I shifted over to the main bar and it's not that big of a casino. I mean, this is in Pahrump, Nevada, after all. It's not like I'm on the Vegas Strip. And um, ended up uh, just hanging out, playing a little video poker, got to watch the Padre game there as well. 
And it's kind of cool when you're do, playing video poker, they give you free drinks, right? And that's the sweetest thing. As long as you just kind of keep gambling, you'll get the free drinks. Well, I ended up um, hanging out for probably two thirds of the game at that bar and they would just, you know, keep delivering them. And I wasn't complaining and, and I was still betting. I was betting, you know, video poker and then later video blackjack. And I'll tell you what, man, playing video blackjack, that, that dealer, man, he'll pull cards out of his ass. I mean, you know, he'll, he'll get to 21 and it'll take him five or six cards and he'll get there. Um, So you know, I would bet like a few hands at a time, watch an inning, bet a few more hands. And I guess I was doing it at just the right amount where they just kept feeding me drinks. And and they were free. They were complimentary, which is great. And I was going to leave it an attractive tip, you know, which made sense. But what's interesting is they weren't that potent of drinks. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when you get free drinks at a bar, do they really give you like real alcohol? Because this felt really weak or maybe it was diluted. I wasn't sure. And so then at the very near the end, a different bartender walked up and says, do you want another drink? And I said, sure. And I was just drinking like this gin. It was um, Bombay. Normally I drink the Bombay Sapphire, but I guess they were just giving me regular Bombay. I've not even never even heard of that. Well, I, she asked me what I wanted. I said, Bombay Sapphire. And then she gave me one, a Bombay Sapphire drink. And oh my God, was it so much more potent. So now it's got me thinking is, do they serve watered down drinks when you get complimentary drinks when you're gambling? And I think they might. Um, so it was nuts. But anyways, the Padres ended up winning. And I, you know, I told you, I bet 40. I probably had a net gain of about $22 on the bet on the ball, ball game. I then went to the craps table and, and basically lost that money plus another roughly about $25 on top of it. I, so I ended up losing about 50 bucks for the night, but that's okay. But the same thing happened at the craps table that happened with the damn video blackjack where the, the rolls just were ridiculous. Um, they didn't follow normal probabilities at all. But anyways, I, I had a fun time and, you know, the Padres won. And then I drove back Sunday and, um, you know, listened to the Padre game on the radio. They didn't have a good day. And it was the stupidest thing. You know, when you drive back from Vegas, you expect there's going to be traffic, but there was just a lot more, especially when I got into Victorville and I started heading down the hill off the Cajon Pass into San Bernardino. Man, it was like five miles an hour coming down the hill. Um, and then then it eventually clears out and there's like really no explanation for it. So um, Chris Sohei says, sounds like a successful run, jealous. Well, thanks, Chris. It, you know, it's fun to get out of town. It's fun to gamble a little. I'm not a big gambler. My friend and I were just talking about this buddy of mine lives in San Francisco. We were just talking about another friend of ours who we went to college with, and he's a big time gambler. And when we went out to Vegas, I've, I've been in a craps table with him and he'll have easily over a thousand dollars worth of chips on the table at any moment in time. And I, I just, I darn well would, would be like gulping the whole time if that were me. Um, but I typically like to bet small money. I like to play craps. I like to play what they call is the dark side, where you play on the don't pass line. So basically, I win when everyone loses um, and vice versa. So I tend to like to have a low profile kind of hang out there. And it's typically the best odds in Vegas is to play craps, to play the don't pass line. And then there are, there are 
techniques to play the odds, um, to maximize your odds, where, again, you are getting the best odds of any gaming in Nevada. You know, slot machines, blackjack, poker. I mean, this is the best way to sort of maximize your money. But if you, you know, I only put, I think I bet $80 on the on the table when I, um, when I put my money down. And you know, if there's a couple of bad runs, I mean, your bank account could be gone. So you typically have to have a bigger bankroll to play it out over a longer period of time. And then the odds tend to normalize. Um, but um, I just happened to get on there and the, the guy on the other end of the table was just everything that I wanted him to roll. He was rolling the opposite. So I was upset. He was happy. He was making money. But as it goes. But anyways, um, I, I had a good time in Pahrump. And like I said, I'll have Pete. Well, he'll join me in the podcast studio. And the great thing is, is when Mike Ryan joined me last week, he was in the studio. So I'm now going to have to start rearranging some of my technology here to welcome guests back in the studio. I'm really looking forward to that because we have much better conversations. So I think, Pete, maybe Wednesday or Friday this week, I, we've got to line that one up. Um, Chris asked me any pony bets like did I oh yeah that was the Kentucky Derby right um, I didn't bet on Kentucky Derby I heard people were like freaking out over um, over Steve Kornacki <laughs> was apparently doing the big board on MSNBC talking about the Kentucky Derby and apparently he picked um, what's that guy's name the trainer that always wears the dark sunglasses is it Baffert or Baffert I guess one of his horses had big odds and that was the one that ended up winning. So that would have probably been the one to bet on. I don't normally bet on horses. Like I'll sometimes go to the Del Mar races. And if I do, I pick a horse that has a clever name and has odds that aren't too crazy, but aren't too safe. Um, and I'll have a fun time doing it and always betting minimum bets, but I'm not a real big horse racing guy. The, the bet that I just did on the Padre game on Saturday night was the first time I've bet sports in a long, long time. Probably... I think the, the, the my, my most successful bet ever in Nevada was in 1998. And it was when the Padres uh, traded for Kevin Brown. And I bet, because I happened to be in the casino with my wife. We were there for a little Vegas getaway. And I put $10 on the Padres to win the National League pennant in 1998. And it was 18 to 1 odds. So they ended up winning the pennant. And so I remember I... I was able to take my $10 ticket, which I held on to all season, and then I mailed it to the casino, and then they mailed me back $190. So the 180 winnings plus my original $10. Um, and I think that's probably the last time I've ever bet on sports in a sports book. Uh, but I had a fun time anyways. Um, but like I said, we're, we're going to do a follow-up with Pete. And Pete will break it down. He'll get into all the technicalities of what it's like to race on that course and what he did to his car. And, and if you're really into cars, you'll enjoy this. And, and it ended up kind of being an unusual weekend for the race. But again, I'm going to let Pete get into that. Okay, so let's get into some of our more serious to uh, topics. Oh, Chris on the live stream says, any sports books in San Diego? I don't know. Is it legal to bet on sports in San Diego? I don't even know. I know you can bet on horses, but I don't think I can bet on a baseball game in San Diego, can I? You know, one of the things that's interesting is, have you noticed that when you watch the Padres now, they're no longer Fox Sports San Diego on Channel 56 on Cox Cable. They're now Bally's Sports. And Bally's is a gaming company. Bally's, uh, I think, has had casinos. They own and manufacture like slot machines and other kinds of casino products. 
Well, Bally's um, is now going to allow at some point they're going to integrate gaming into an interactive TV model during the Padre games on channel 56 Cox cable. I think that's going to be really exciting. So, um, but as far as sports books in San Diego, I'm unaware of any, I know I can bet on sports usually online with casinos that are essentially offshore, like in the Cayman islands. So they'll, they'll accept bets. I remember one time also, this is like in the nineties, probably like 94, 95. I drove down to Tijuana to place bets at um, a casino for the Super Bowl. Cause they remember all those Super Bowl proposition bets are always fun. Like who's going to win the coin toss and, and who's going to score more points. Is it going to be one of the, uh, one of the NFL teams in the Super Bowl or like Michael Jordan in the, uh, for the Chicago Bulls, who's going to score more points. They have all those really fun bets. Um, and I remember wait, my buddy and I drove down and placed some bets down there and, you know, they're all, just goofy bets. We didn't end up winning any of them because it would have required driving back down. Um, Caliente. Yeah, that's where we went. We went to Caliente, Chris, and and had a really fun time with that. But that, gosh, that was, holy moly, that was 25 years ago. That was a long time ago. Um, okay, so let's let's get into some of these topics. I want to talk about, you know, this story. I was, I was in Pahrump, Nevada, and I look on CNN.com, and San Diego was in the headline. I'm like, oh, my God, what happened? And... There was this terrible, tragic accident off the coast of Point Loma, and it was a boat that had run up against the rocky coastline there, you know, kind of near Cabrillo National Monument. And the, the boat capsized and broke in pieces, and there were people that were, you know, f- were in the ocean. And it turned out that f- at least three people are dead. And Dozens were hurt. I know they were transporting people to all the major hospitals here in San Diego County. And then they've had search missions going on looking for more people. You know, at this point, it's probably just to recover bodies. Um, I know that the Mexican government has gotten involved. They're trying to notify families. And it's it's a really big deal. I mean, it's a it's a tragic, a tragic accident. Um, and it's national news, but but a lot of this goes to our immigration policy, and, and that's where I want to offer some commentary. But just lifting from the article from the San Diego Union-Tribune, at least three people were killed and more than two dozen were injured Sunday when an overloaded boat crashed into a reef and broke apart in rough water off Point Loma in what authorities said was a human smuggling attempt – and then according to um, Border Patrol agent supervisor Jeffrey Stevenson, every indication from our perspective is that this was a smuggling vessel used to smuggle migrants into the United States illegally. So there's a lot of angles to this. I mean, obviously, a tragic accident. People lost their lives. There are people in hospitals that are hurt, possibly seriously hurt. You know, the Coast Guard's involved. A lot of emergency responders are involved. But a certain segment of the story speaks to our immigration policy, right? Because we've got a crisis at the border. We've talked about this in this podcast where people are being held in detention centers at the border. Um, People are streaming to the United States border, many of them thinking, well, you know, Trump is out, right? So now they're going to let people in. And we've got Biden as president. And, you know, Biden projects this old, friendly grandpa, older uncle Joe kind of persona that people think that he's going to be a lot more welcoming of immigrants into the United States. 
if if for nothing else that he's not Trump. Well, now the you know Trump was criticized for having people in cages, which by the way, Obama and Biden, when he was vice president, President Obama's administration built those cages on the border. Then Trump is using the cages. People are wagging fingers at Trump. You're putting people in cages. And they say, well, Obama built them, you know, deflection. Well, now, now um, Biden is president. And so what is he doing? Well, they're not keeping people in cages, but they're still in detention centers. They're still being held against their will. They're still being held by government authorities and not being allowed to enter the United States. And you're still seeing people with these, well, they looks like tinfoil blankets, like something from NASA. In fact, I think one of the, the Congress uh, people from, you know, I can't remember which one she is. And she's one of the more outspoken Trump supporters. I think during President Biden's um, address to the nation, um, she was put one of those you know, tinfoil blankets over her, over her waist while she was watching the speech, which is kind of nuts. Let me turn off my phone before this goes off in the middle of a podcast episode. Okay. So, um, there's, there's a crisis at the border. People want to come into America. People want to immigrate into the United States, whether it's legally or illegally, but they're being detained at the border. There's chaos at the border. It's a mess. Now, it's been a mess. It's not just on Biden. It's been a mess on Trump. It was a mess under Obama. We've had a border crisis of some form for decades. It's because the the immigration policy we have in the United States is a cluster. And the Republicans want to fix some things, but the Democrats want to fix a lot of things. And the 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 Republicans will not agree to the Democrats um, uh, plan until their issues are addressed first. Right. They want to build the wall. They want to restrict immigration before they start talking about letting people in legally under a better, more streamlined process. Meanwhile, the Democrats are blaming the Republicans saying, well, you guys just want to build walls. We can't be having this kind of inhumane immigration policy. Well, all the while. The immigration policy never changes uh, really of any significance. I mean, Trump came in and built up part of the wall, but that was really more of a dog and pony show. That was really more theater than anything. Um, And so here we are. It's just the next iteration of a president. The next is still a continuation of the same stupid failed immigration policy. So what do people do if they want to come to America, if they can't come in legally, you know, because people say you got to get into the back of the line. You know, we got a legal process. Got to do it legally. Well, if you go through legally, it takes forever to get in the United States. It could take months, years, many years for that line, that virtual line to kind of work its way through. But it turns out that, um, you know, the, the policy doesn't really change. So what people will do is they'll find ways to come in illegally. And if that means they're going to, you know, put on their hiking boots and cross over the desert, over the mountains and desert and risk their lives that way, sometimes they're doing that. Now, Trump tried to have more border enforcement. So what ends up happening now is now they take these boats and they go out into the Pacific Ocean and in the middle of the night, probably with people that are not very experienced piloting these boats and bringing these immigrants into America 
trying to, you know, I guess this boat was not like a normal sort of, they called them pangas, which are like those normal, like uh, open-ended fishing boats, almost like a rowboat, but bigger. Um, they weren't those kinds of boats. This actually looked a little bit like a commercial uh, boat that could have maybe integrated with a lot of the other boat traffic. But instead, this boat had met a tragic end and people lost their lives. And it didn't have to happen this way. And it's because of this this ridiculous immigration policy. Now, I you know, I talk about how this podcast is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? It, this is all about what our founders, you know, wrote in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. What, in my opinion, makes America great is that this is a nation that's founded on individual rights, on the right to your life, the right to live your life according to your own values, to make choices in your life, and ultimately to pursue your happiness. I mean, to me, this is a beautiful philosophy that was captured in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, but has been violated over and over and over again by politicians who claim to support those very same rights. Of course, the most classic example of this was slavery. For the first, you know, roughly 100 years of our nation's history, um, you know, I'm not going back prior to 1776. I mean, that slavery, of course, existed prior to then. But for the first hundred years of America's history, slavery was a direct violation of that. But we still had a relatively open immigration policy. People just came to America. And then it became a little tighter as we got into the Industrial Revolution, the late 1800s, the early 1900s. And then you started to see a lot more anti-immigration rhetoric, even back then against, you know, now it's largely against, you know, Latinos, against Mexicans, against people from Central America. But back in that day, it was against people from Ireland and from Italy and a lot of other nations, people certainly from Asia. The Chinese were uh, suffered under a lot of our immigration laws as well. Um, I mean, they had an what was it, a Chinese Exclusion Act that prevented Chinese from people from entering the United States coming to America to pursue their happiness. Um, instead, their liberty was restricted. So it's interesting to me how this tragic accident that happened off the coast of Point Loma would never have had to happen at all if the United States lived up to the founding values that it claims to support life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so let's, let's now transition a bit. I want to talk a little bit about liberty and talk about Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who is now kind of the darling of the Republican party. And some of his rhetoric that I hear him talk about, some of it sounds great, but sometimes the policies that come from um, some of our friends on the right, our conservative friends, our um, Republican friends, sometimes they'll claim to support liberty, but then turn around and violate it right in its face. I mean, n- not just with immigration, but even liberty for Americans. And this is um, this was a plan that the headline read. And this is from a USA Today article, and it says. Uh, Ban Trump, question mark, not so fast. Florida is about to pass a law to stop Facebook and Twitter from censoring politicians. And I thought about this. I said, wait a minute. Um, Facebook and Twitter are private companies, right? I mean, they can decide who they want on their platform. Um, This is liberty after all, right? I mean, Facebook and Twitter should have the liberty to make decisions on what kind of content is on their platform. Well, according to this article, 
Florida Ron DeSantis, and he did he already sign this bill? He might have, but this article was a few days ago. Said he's likely to sign a bill into law which would prevent social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google's YouTube platform, uh, YouTube from deplatforming politicians such as former President Trump. It would order social media companies to publish standards with detailed definitions of when someone would be censored or blocked and make companies subject to as much as a $250,000 daily fine for deplatforming a Florida candidate. This is remarkable. So this is a flat out like attack on the First Amendment. This is essentially the government making laws that can manipulate speech that will control the speech that other companies or other people are allowed to present. This is essentially preventing these social media platforms from having the liberty to police their own content. But these are the same people that are waving flags about America and freedom. And yet they want to violate the freedom and liberty of, in this case, of American companies from deciding what kind of content they want on that their platform and from deplatforming people that they think they don't want to have on their platform. Now, this is, I mean, granted, you would hope that they would be open and free and allow a free form of content. But I mean, heck, I do this podcast. I get comments on my live stream that I don't necessarily always read on the air. I make decisions on what I want. I choose to include or not include in the content of my podcast. Now, at the same time, I'm live streaming this on YouTube and Facebook. If I were to say certain things that YouTube and Facebook didn't like, they would have the ability to deplatform me. I, I may not like it, but you know what? It's their platform. Now, if the government came in and deplatformed me, if the government restricted my right to express my speech, then that would be an attack on the First Amendment. But if a private company decide, makes that decision, that, that's, not an, that's not an assault on free speech. It's like a newspaper gets letters to the editor, right? They don't have to publish every letter to the editor that they receive. They can pick and choose. Who they, choose, who they decide to put in their publication. But in this case, we're finding our, our Republican friends that proclaim to be supporters of liberty here want to just straight up violate it. Um, and according to um, an attorney, his name is Chris Z uh, Carl Zabo, um, who is the vice president and general counsel for NetChoice, um, he said, this bill um, abandons conservative values you know, essentially fining companies for deplatforming politicians. It abandons conservative values, violates the First Amendment, and would force websites to host anti-Semitic, racist, and hateful content, right? Because if a, if a political candidate started, you know, spewing all kinds of nonsense, they would be forced to have it on their platform. Um, this content moderation is crucial to an internet that is safe and valuable for families, families and Flor Floridian businesses. But this bill would undermine this important ecosystem. So, and then he goes on to say, he goes, there's already a solution to deplatforming candidates on social media. And that's to simply stop trafficking in conspiracy theories. That is the solution. Stop pushing misinformation. If you're a candidate 
or an incumbent elected official. Stop retweeting QAnon and stop lying on social media. So, you know, the funny thing is, is that this tactic, besides the fact that it is an attack on the First Amendment, besides the fact that it's an attack on the liberty of other people. Remember, this is the thing, is that with, with rights, with our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they're not just for you or me. They're for everybody. Everyone has those same rights. And so if a company like Facebook wants to de-platform or to, um, you know, take away the, the privileges of someone on their on their platform, they should have the right to do it. But what they're trying to do is to have government get in there and regulate more. Even though our Republican friends claim they want to have less regulation, in this case, they want more regulation. And on top of all of that, it's um, on top of all that, it's setting it up. It's teeing this up perfectly for our Democrat friends, our progressive friends, our friends on the left who want to make the Internet a essentially utility like San Diego Gas and Electric. They want to make it a utility. Um, and in these cases, they also want to see some of these social media platforms to be in many cases, you know, strictly regulated. Well, this is playing right into their hands with this as well is. And so while our Republican conservative Trump friends demand free speech, they want to oppress the free speech rights of these other companies. So this to me just always just drives me bonkers when I see this is that again, I, I stand up for, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And sometimes people, they hear those words and they think, well, you must be a Trump supporter, right? And I'm not, not at all, not even close. And I I was talking with my friend um, up in San Francisco, the same guy I was talking to, we were um, uh, joking about gambling. My friend up in San Francisco, his name's Jack, and he likes to enjoy these podcast episodes and hopefully he's watching this one. And he says to me, he goes, whenever you say liberty or freedom on your podcast, he goes, I get a very negative reaction. And I've asked him, I go, why? I mean, those are like great words. Those are virtuous words. Those are beautiful words, freedom and liberty. I mean, that's what America was founded on. Right. And he goes, yeah, but every time I see freedom or liberty, I think of all those Trump supporters and I see them with their signs for freedom and the American flag. And and it, I see that and it, I get a negative vibe from that. And I'm thinking, OK, I, OK, I get that because sure enough, when I'm here in Poway, my hometown of Poway on Sundays, I go down the intersection of Pomerado Road and Twin Peaks. I see the political protesters and the Trump folks are out there setting up shop. And a lot of times you'll see signs for freedom and liberty. But in many categories, they want to violate the freedom and liberty of other people. So my friend Jack up in San Francisco, when he said that, it gave him a negative reaction. It was almost like a trigger word. I was like, that's interesting. I said, well, I can't let that stand. I I mean, I have to challenge this because I believe we need to reclaim those words for what they really mean. Um, Chris Sohei says, tell him to go to a giant seventh inning stretch to seek liberty, freedom, and health. (laughs) Um, Like, like, 
think about this. I made a list, and I, I, this is just a short list of policies that are Trump friends support that are a direct violation of liberty or of freedom. Um, and but, but, you know, one of them is travel bans. Right. We saw that when I mean, remember when President Trump was running for office, he said um, he issued a, it was it was funny. It was like he issued a press release and then he read it on um, on a, at a podium at one of his um, rallies. And it was I, Donald J. Trump, here, hereby declare a ban on all Muslims entering the United States of America until we can figure out what in the hell is going on. Do you remember that? Well, if you stand for freedom and liberty, you wouldn't be banning people from entering the United States. If you stood for the First Amendment, which gives people the right to freely um, to, to freely engage with their religion, if you stand for religious freedom, which a lot of our friends on the right, our conservative friends support, then you wouldn't be banning people from coming to America specifically because of their religion. And he ended up not being able to get that to pass through the Supreme Court. But instead, he was able to get a travel ban on certain nations, which, by the way, were strongly um, uh, populated with Muslim people, which effectively was a Muslim ban. But he did it for geogra- on geographical basis rather than on a religious basis. But still – Blocking people from coming to America just because they happen to come from a certain nation. That's a violation of liberty. That's a violation of letting someone else pursue their happiness to come to America, just like our ancestors did when they came to the United States. Um, Another example are trade wars. And we see this with um, with President Trump, you know, with all these tariffs. Remember, he goes, I'm tariff man, you know, because he wanted to make it difficult for free trade to happen. What's free trade? Free trade means that people can buy and sell without having the government come in and interfere. So if I wanted to buy a computer from a company in in China or Japan or South Korea, you know, where a lot of consumer electronics are, are being built, if I wanted to buy technology from one of those nations, if it were free trade, I would just pay whatever the seller was selling it for. But when the government gets involved, they begin adding tariffs. They add a tax for those imported goods. And by the way, who pays the tax? A lot of people think you're putting a tariff on China and China's paying the tax, but they don't. The people that pay the tax are Americans. We pay it in higher price goods because when those items come to the United States, the importer who's at the, you know, at the port of call, I guess is what it is. They pay a duty. They pay a tax on those imported goods. So if those goods are worth, just to make the numbers easy, $100, well, they might be charged an extra $5, $10, $20 on top of that. And so that importer then passes that along to the wholesalers, distributors, resellers, and eventually to the consumer. Americans pay tariffs. So the crazy thing is, is while our friends on the right support freedom and liberty, they want to violate free trade. And they do so 
by making Americans, you know, so-called America first. They do so by making Americans pay higher taxes on those goods when they come to the United States. So when my friend says he, when he hears the words freedom and liberty, and it kind of, you know, gets the hair on the back of his neck standing up, I guess I kind of get it, but it's just, it's ridiculous that it has to be this way because these are important words. I mean, another one is the border wall, the wall along the Southern border that Trump ran on that Mexico was supposed to pay for it. And he never paid for it. Who paid for it? You paid for it. And I paid for it. It was a con game, but the border wall exists to keep people out, to violate their Liberty, to violate their pursuit of happiness. The wall exists to violate liberty. That's the point of a wall. Um, what else? A woman's right to choose. When that, you know, we can bring up the abortion topic. That's a topic that will never seem to be resolved in America. But no question, if you support liberty, I and mean, that's a big reason why I'm pro-choice on abortion, um, I think the woman has the right to choose because it's her it's her body she has the free she should have the freedom the liberty to make those decisions um gay marriage for the longest time our friends on the right our republican friends oppose gay marriage but they gays have the same right to to marry as anyone else gosh i remember back in the 80s um i wasn't fully evolved on some of these topics i didn't really understand things and i remember being against gay marriage back then. And, you know, it just didn't seem right, you know? And, and I was young, I was in my twenties. I didn't understand. And then I remember my wife and she, frankly, I think this is before we got married and she talked about it and she said, well, they should be able to marry too. Right. I said, well, I don't know. I don't think so. She says, well, well, why not? Does it hurt you? Doesn't hurt you. And if we have the right to marry, then why shouldn't they? They're consenting adults. I thought to myself, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And I switched and I flipped on that issue because I learned. And actually, I found out that it was more consistent with liberty to allow them to marry. But it hasn't been until very recently that our friends on the right, our Republican friends, have kind of, what should I say, they've, they've sort of, you know, acquiesced on this issue. They, they've, they've allowed uh, gay marriage to no longer be a battling point, but it had been for decades. Yet they supposedly support freedom, but not, they want freedom for themselves, but not for the other guy. But the other guy has rights too. Um, the war on drugs is another great one. Um, the war on drugs, I mean, people have the right to use drugs, in my opinion, whether you like it or not, people have the right to drink alcohol. It's their body. It's their choice. It's their liberty. But in many cases, people, you know, our conservative friends want to violate the liberty of other people to make those decisions about their own life. And yet they say they're for freedom. I mean, we can even go into like aggressive police action and look at what happened to Breonna Taylor. She was in her apartment with her boyfriend in the middle of the night, the police barged into their room, into their apartment, looking for drugs that weren't there, trying to find a drug dealer that wasn't there. Ended up a gunfight happened. Breonna Taylor lost her life. She was doing nothing wrong. And yet this was a complete violation of her rights, of her liberty, of her, 
ability just to be left alone in peace. But yet this aggressive police action is usually supported by our friends on the right who also claim to support liberty. There's an inconsistency there. And it makes sense, I think, while my friend kind of sees it as a trigger word to him. And it's nuts. It shouldn't have to be that way. That's why I just wish people would look more inwardly and, and try to find consistency and how they go about it. Now, our friends on the left, I mean, they're no saviors for freedom either. They claim to be pro-choice, but in so many categories, they want to violate your choice. They want to force you to buy corporate insurance for health care or ideally force you into a government monopoly for health care insurance. Um, they want to force you into all kinds of other social programs like Social Security and Medicare, and you can't opt out. It's not pro-choice. I mean, we can make a list of a lot of stuff on the left that our progressive friends want to violate liberty. But at least they're, well, they're not walking around with liberty signs and freedom signs, but they are walking around with pro-choice signs. So there's even hypocrisy on the left on this issue as well. So um, I don't know. Um, My friend even went on to say is when he sees an American flag. Now, granted, my friend's, he's he's a liberal. My friend Jack is a hardcore liberal and very proud of it. And... I mean, after all, he lives in San Francisco. I mean, you know, that makes sense. But it's interesting that for him, when he even sees an American flag, he feels that. Now, when I see an American flag, I think about what this podcast is about, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what America is founded on. I like that. I've thought about getting an American flag and putting it in front of our house. I might do that someday. It's just where we live. It's not like you can share that with other people because if I put a flag in front of our house, the only people would see it would be me and my family. But even that on its own is pretty good. Um, But it's interesting. The whole topic is just fascinating to me. Okay, let's move on. I'm kind of beating a dead horse there. Um, Again, we're, we're live streaming here on Facebook and YouTube. I welcome your thoughts and comments. Um, I want to get into a couple of more things. And this was interesting. And this was in the voice of San Diego. Have you ever been there? It's a, it's an online um, website. It's kind of like a newspaper, but it's um, an online version. And I think it's run by the same people that run KPBS. So um, definitely a more progressive, more left-leaning, but they still cover a lot of really interesting topics. Um, often topics that the San Diego Union Tribune either doesn't cover in much detail or doesn't cover at all. And um, Sarah Libby, who's, I guess, one of their main um, journalists there, she has this article that she put out yesterday. It was called What We Learned This Week. And there were a couple of interesting topics in here because these link back to a lot of our previous podcast conversations. Um, the first one was they were talking about how, you know, after the census, they're After the recent census in the United States, California is losing a congressional seat. And for some people, it's like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And and the article goes on to say is that it's it's just that it's not, you know, people want to jump to the conclusion that people are leaving California. And actually, there are a lot of people that are leaving California, people moving out of the state for one reason or another. It's too expensive to live here. They don't like the taxes. They they have trouble making ends meet here economically. 
And there, there, I mean, there's even a Facebook group called Leaving California talking about people. They're just journaling and talking about their conversations of leaving the state. It's interesting. But despite all that, California still is growing in population. And even though there's more people leaving than coming in, but still in the United States, in California, there's, you know, people have, people are born, you know, so there's more, you know, babies. The end result is, is that California is growing as a state, has a higher population, but it's just not growing as fast as a lot of these other states. Um, and this article goes on to say is, is that's why we need more housing. And housing, an interesting topic. We've talked a lot about it here in San Diego, and and it was a big topic of conversation with Mike Ryan and I here in Poway. They're building more housing, and people are freaking out about it. But even here, there now people are saying we need more housing just so we can have more congressional people, uh, congressional representatives in Washington D.C. It's interesting. So, um, a State Department of Finance official told the New York Times, the new census data that facilitated the congressional seat loss reflected not a mass departure, but a shortage of new Californians, the result of postponed parenthood and blocked immigration. Now, of course, a spokesperson for the state of California is not going to go on and advertise that people want to leave the state. They're not doing that. Um, They're going to you know, really point the finger elsewhere. They're going to point the finger to immigration, which makes sense. And they're going to, you know, they're talking about people putting off having children. And during a pandemic, that makes sense. During difficult economic times, that makes sense. But they go on to say making housing more plentiful and thus more affordable could lure new residents and prevent others from leaving and encourage still others to have children. So again, the angle from this article was we need more housing. We need, we need to have more construction, which then goes back to one of the reasons why I'm supportive of building more housing here in Poway, both on Poway Road, but also down the road here from me at the farm in Poway. We need more housing in this in the state of California. That's why housing is so insanely expensive. That's why when realtors here in our, in our town put homes up for sale, they are sold in a matter of days. I mean, what's interesting is the house that we lived in when we first moved into Poway is on the end of Garden Road in the community called Sycamore Creek. And we bought there in 1996. And I think we spent, might've been $260,000 for that house. We sold it in 2007 for 725000 And now homes in that community are selling for over a million. Amazing. Amazing the, the, the difference in real estate values. And a lot of it's because there's massive demand to live here, but not enough supply. That's why we need to build more housing. And it's interesting in this article. Now, here's another rationale for more housing. It's, it's not just to provide roofs over people's heads. It's not just to relax the insane prices that makes it so difficult for first-time homebuyers and for renters to live reasonably comfortably in California. But now, 
building more housing is justification to try to regain more congressional seats. But we'll have to wait at least 10 years before that's going to happen. But an interesting angle to this. And then the article goes on further to talk about blaming NIMBY laws, you know, not in my backyard. And that's that's something that we're experiencing here in Poway. Um, There's always resistance. There's resistance to change. And there's a lot of rational reasons to be resistance to change. And when Mike Ryan was here on Wednesday, he shared many of those thoughts and all of his thoughts are legitimate. There are more people on the roads, more congestion is going to add to traffic in his commute time. Who knows about the um, impact on schools and on water infrastructure. It may change the, the character of our community. It may even change the culture of our community, having more dense housing may lead to more crime. There's a lot of points that he made on Wednesday's podcast. And I think every one of them are legitimate to some degree. But I also think that a lot of those concerns are based on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We don't really know what it's going to be like. We have concerns, we have worries, but I have, I have a tendency to think the end result, at least of what they're going to build here in Poway, is probably going to be better than what existed before. It's going to be different, and that change is going to be uncomfortable for people. There's going to be some downside. I mean, there's no question there's going to be more traffic. I don't think it's going to be as much as people think. It's not like everyone suddenly is on the road at the same time. And even for the farm in Poway, it's not going to be that much traffic. But there will be a difference. There will be some, but not enough, I think, to radically change people's lifestyle. But on the other hand, we're going to see an improved economy, improved local economy. We're going to see an improved um, visuals. We're going to see upgraded amenities. We're going to see a lot of positive energy, a lot of positive change in our community. Heck, even at the farm in Poway, we're going to see more agricultural opportunities, people that can go and there'll be a farmer's market opportunity there as well. There's going to be a cafe and and more entertainment options for people in our community to enjoy. To me, that's all good. Um, But housing is just such a hot topic. And this resistance to housing development is now slowing the growth of the population in the state of California. And again, some people may think that's a good thing, but it's now leading to California having a less of a competitive advantage in the House of Representatives. It's interesting how that all plays out. Um, finally, and I'll just, this is a short topic to comment on. And it was also in this same article, what we learned this week in The Voice of San Diego, And it was about the funds that our local school districts received from the federal government for for COVID relief. And the um, the journalist, her name is Ashley McGlone, and she is very, very good at what she does. I got a chance to meet her when I ran for school board in 2014. Um, This is a young lady, professional journalist, specializes in deep investigative reporting on specifically on education in San Diego County. And I, she may cover some other topics, but this is kind of her focal point. She does really good work. And whether the reporting that she does may 
present factual information that you may like or you may dislike. The fact is, is that she discovers things that a lot of other journalists don't. And and she does her homework. And she went and did some investigative reporting and looked at the money that school districts throughout San Diego County were getting and concluded that over 50% of that money went actually to pay teachers. And this has been a, a frequent topic that I have commented on as it pertains to our local school district here in the city, in Poway, Poway Unified School District, where we'll find that the school district will cry that they don't have enough money. But when they get money, what do they do with it? They give it to their employees. And in this case, that's exactly what most of the school districts throughout the county did. Now, Poway, to their credit, didn't give 50% of their money from the pandemic relief to teachers. It was only about, I have to look at, I mean, I was looking at the chart. It looked like it was around 30 to 40%. Um, But when when there was the pandemic relief, the expectation was, is that it was going to be funding online education, maybe software uh, licensing and other technology requirements to better serve students that are studying online remotely. And yeah, maybe increase staff and IT to make that happen, or maybe licensing software for curriculum or for learning platforms, you know, so they're not using Zoom. Maybe there's a better platform that's more appropriate for education. That made sense to me. And then there, you know, back in the early days of the pandemic, before we kind of learned what we learned, you know, they were paying for a tremendous amount of disinfecting and, and then, you know, those, those plexiglass cubicles around desks and all sorts of other things. I think the expectation was, was that they were going to spend the money to make the schools more conducive to offering a, a better learning environment, either online or on site, even during the pandemic. But a lot of the money ended up going to employees, to teachers. It went to um, teachers for paying for hazard pay and a lot of other cases where a lot of times this is my criticism, especially here at Poway Unified, is that when the unions get involved, when the unions get involved, they figure out a way to redirect those dollars to their, essentially to their constituents, which are their employees that are in that union. And I mean, I can't blame the union. That's what unions are supposed to do is look out for their employees. But the unions have such a tight grip on the elected school board officials because those school board officials covet the endorsement of that teacher's union and of those public employee unions. And in order to get that endorsement, they've got to do a quid pro quo. And so as a result, we saw a lot of this money going back into the pockets of teachers. And again, we can say teachers need to be making more money, and I'll be the first guy to agree with that. But a lot of times it's like that um, Rahm Emanuel line, never let a crisis go to waste. In this case, never don't let this pandemic go to waste. This is an opportunity where we can figure out a way to pay teachers more money. Rather than just making the case that teachers should make more. Now, again, I'm of the opinion that if they expanded and got to be really good at online education, especially in the high school classes like physics or chemistry or, or some of the advanced math classes, they could use this online uh, platform to have streaming lectures 
and to have the best chemistry or physics or pre-calc teacher presenting this content online. And as a result, having the best teacher in that category, not teaching a class of 30 students, but instead teaching 300 students across the district. And as a result, you'd need less teachers. And by having less teachers, that has more money available to give raises to the teachers that are still there. So I think there are opportunities that teachers can make more, but I just wish they would go about it in a more straightforward fashion rather than using a pandemic as an excuse to, to, to essentially line their pockets. And I'll give full credit to Ashley McGlone from, um, you know, she's a reporter for uh, Voice of San Diego. And I, you know, I think she does really good work and, you know, all credit to her for that. So, yeah, we've covered a lot in this podcast. I'm still kind of getting my engines revving again. You know, I was in Pahrump over the weekend watching my friend Pete race. Really looking forward to having Pete here in the podcast studio. We could talk about his experience on the racetrack and everything that goes into that. I think that's a really good story. But I had a great time while I was out there, even though, you know, uh, the, the second half of the weekend I was there by myself and I made the fun. I made the most of it. I, I got in like some really good quality time working on my business. Um, some quiet time. I was out of the house, which was helpful because I, you know, I work from home and live at home and I'm rarely leaving home. So it was nice to get out of the house for a while. Had some fun watching the Padre game. Um, still haven't figured out. I don't know what your theory is on when you're getting free drinks, when you're at the, at the bar playing video poker. Are those real drinks? Because I'll tell you what, man, I I had like three of them, you know, and granted, it wasn't a lot of volume, but still it was like nothing. And then and then at the very end, I ended up getting what I thought was what should have been a real drink. And oh, my God, it was a big difference. So I wonder if those free drinks are really legit. What do you think? I'm interested in your thoughts on that one. Um, Okay, so. Well, we've covered a lot. Yeah, we've talked about, um, talked a little bit about Pahrump, Nevada, talked a little bit about um, the, the Spring Mountain Motor Speedway, which we're going to get into more detail. We talked Padres, we talked craps, talked uh, video poker, video blackjack, and uh, we got into the whole crisis um, with the, the migrants that were being smuggled into San Diego. Tragic story. Um, that led us into a conversation about immigration policy and about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and how those are inalienable rights, not just for Americans, but for everybody, including those migrants that tragically lost their lives trying to come to America, coming to an America where they could pursue their happiness, but instead their their lives met a terrible end. We talked a little bit about Ron DeSantis and his ideas for essentially finding social media companies for deplatforming politicians. Now, never mind the fact that it's probably okay to deplatform an individual that's not a politician, like a regular person or a community activist or a business owner. But if it's a politician, they want to have special rights just for them. And doing so, he wants to violate the freedom of companies like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, even though he claims to be a supporter of liberty. And that led us into a whole list of contradictions 
of both sides, really, the left and the right, where the right claims they're for liberty and freedom, but they violate freedom. And our friends on the left claim they're pro-choice, but they violate choice. On the live stream, Pete Neal chiming in, can't help you on the drink question. Haven't had one in 20 years. Um, Good for you, Pete. You know, I still enjoy having an adult beverage from time to time. I have my limits. You know, it's like, uh, was it, was that Clint Eastwood? You know, a man's got to know his limitations. Um, but yeah, I have full respect. If, if you have chosen to, to, um, abstain by all means, that's good for you. That's good for your lifestyle. Um, Pete Neal goes on to say boats and beach runners in Imperial beach were an issue in the late sixties. It was spark. It was part of standing security watch on the base in Imperial beach. So yeah, I would imagine Pete, if you're in the Navy, and you're stationed in Imperial Beach or there in Coronado, Silver Strand. That's federal government property. It makes sense if it's a military base. They want to keep people from coming on their base. Sure, the Coast Guard's going to patrol the water, but the Coast Guard isn't bulletproof. They're not a perfect shield. So, yeah, that makes sense that part of the standing security watch for you and the Navy was to keep an eye on that. But that's probably why when these boats dock, you usually see them docking in Del Mar or in La Jolla, like Black's Beach, or in this case, they were trying to dock near Point Loma. And you know, if you've ever been out there on Point Loma or over been over by the Sunset Cliffs area, you know how rocky that coastline is. And you get an inexperienced uh, pi- uh, captain of that vessel, it's trouble. That's what happened. And it never needed to happen in the first place if we had an immigration policy that made it easier, cheaper, and faster for people to legally immigrate into the United States. That would be the right approach politically, is rather than holding people and detaining them, it doesn't matter if they're in cages or in buildings with four walls and a security guard. If we just made immigration easier, cheaper, and faster, A, that would be more consistent with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and B, we wouldn't have a crisis at the border, and C, people wouldn't be losing their lives trying to come to America. It's interesting, too, I mean, talking about contradiction, the Statue of Liberty that's out there in New York Harbor has always been this symbol of what makes America great. When immigrants came to the United States, they saw that Statue of Liberty and they said, we're finally here in the land of freedom. And the inscription on the bottom of that statue says, give us your poor and huddled masses. And that's how America was built. That's how America was transformed from a small colonial agricultural kind of mercantile society And then once we allowed immigrants to really come here in the later part of the 1800s and the early 1900s, mostly that period between the Civil War and World War I, that's when America was transformed by the Industrial Revolution, by amazing innovators that created airplanes and, and and, and transcontinental railroads and Thomas Edison and electricity and the light bulb. And we can make a list of all the great innovators 
Henry Ford. I mean, he wasn't the inventor of the automobile, but he was a great innovator in the manufacturing process and the division of labor and the work that he did in Michigan to to streamline the production of large quantities of automobiles at low prices, which really is what free trade and free markets are really all about. Um, when we saw this nation welcome immigrants is when America truly became great, became a power on the global stage that really allowed the United States to play a role in World War I and to ultimately win World War II. That never would have happened if we didn't, if we didn't welcome immigrants to America. But it seems we've lost, we've, we've lost that will, or maybe more importantly, we fail to understand what our founding values are really all about, what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness really means. You know, in the Declaration of Independence, it says that all men are created equal. Now, of course, men means all genders, men as in humans. But it goes on to say that we are all endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, we can have a debate of who your creator is. But we all have these rights. And it's not just rights for Americans. It's not just rights for white people or people of European descent. Inalienable rights are rights that can't be taken away. Because they come from your creator or from nature, their natural rights, the right to your own life, the right to manage your life, that you are in charge of you, you own you. You're not a subject of a king, but you own you. A right to liberty, to make choices, that you are free of coercion, particularly free of government coercion. And finally, the right to pursue your own happiness, to live your life according to your own values. That's what America was founded on. That's what our founders understood. This was during the Age of Enlightenment when people were figuring this stuff out. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful prose that's written into the preamble of the Declaration. And much of that is reflected in the Bill of Rights as well. But Many people in America have lost sight of that, and they think that those rights only apply to Americans. And the answer is that they don't. Those same rights apply to immigrants, even illegal immigrants. They also have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's what we saw in this case. These people were coming to America peacefully, not hurting anybody. They were on a boat. They just wanted to come to America to, to maybe work Maybe they have family here. They want to see their loved ones. They just want to pursue their happiness, just like you or me. But they had to come in the dead of night. They had to take huge risks. The captain of their boat made mistakes, probably because he was inexperienced, hit a rocky coastline, and the whole boat blew up. On the live stream, Pete Neal, a few more comments. Back in those days, we would take the Jeep out and just shine a light on them. They would pull back and, and go further north. So exactly, Pete, as those immigrants, illegal immigrants, undocumented, I mean, whatever politically correct name you want to give them, 
people trying to get to the United States that are having trouble coming in legally because the process is too regulated, too constricting, too difficult, too time-consuming, too expensive, too burdensome. Typically made that way, by the way, by people that believe in deregulation, that want small government, (laughs) but yet they want to make regulation extraordinarily make immigration extraordinarily regulated. So what do they do? They come by boat. And to your point, Pete, they might want to try to dock in Imperial Beach. That's the quickest way in. But if you're there in the Navy and you're shining light on them to kind of shoo them away, yeah, they just go north and they find a landing spot, probably like Black's Beach, maybe Torrey Pines Beach, you know, a beach where there's not a lot of people, there's not a lot of houses, and it's easy to sneak in. Yeah, I'm sure they do that. Um, Pete goes on to say, now the Navy SEALs are taking over that base. We'll see what they do. Okay. Um, Yuri goes on to say, hi, Pete. Did everything work out last night? (laughs) Okay, again, we do our live stream. I love the conversation, but sometimes our our chat friends are chatting amongst themselves. So I got to pick and choose who I want to read on the air, but it's all good. Okay, our friends, all right, it's, it's an hour. This is good. Uh, Pete, I'll be in touch with you. We're going to schedule a time. We can do it Wednesday or Friday this week, or we can do it next week, whatever your schedule permits. And we'll find a way to get together and we'll talk about Pahrump and maybe catch up on a few other things. I'm going to make some changes here in the podcast studio. Now that I'm, it's weird, is now that I'm live streaming, I am using a new camera, which I've been using now for almost a year. But if I'm going to have a guest in the studio, then I have one camera that's fixed on both guests. And that's why Mike, Ryan, and I on Wednesday were on opposite sides of this table. And you could only see our heads on I'm trying to get it on screen here. Either way, we can only, and we we're probably only half of our heads were fitting in. I need to get my old Mevo camera involved, which if you remember back when I was recording podcasts before the pandemic and I was having guests, that Mevo camera would zoom in on a guest and zoom out for a wide angle. And then when the other person was talking, it would zoom in on them. It's wonderful. It's like having a multi-camera setup that's automated that you don't have to have a person, you know, running it. But the problem is, is that Mevo camera will not plug into my StreamYard software, which I use to do the live streaming. So I need to figure that out here pretty quick. Um, but now that I'm now having guests back in the podcast studio, I'm motivated and excited to, to get all that figured out. So what does that mean? It means I might need to get another camera. Um, and I know Mevo makes new, a newer version that will work, but you know, it's, it's a thing. It's like when you're, whatever hobby you're in, you know, Pete, you've got your Corvette and everyone seems to have a hobby. It's one of those things that could be a pit of money, (laughs) endless spending. So um, if I get another camera, that'll be my third camera for the podcast, but not counting my little webcam that I sometimes use too. So it'll be the fourth camera. Um, But anyways, I'll, I'll implement that. And I think that'll be, it'll set up a lot better. And then, and then hopefully we'll get to a point where we can have more than two guests. Um, I've got to, I, I've, in order to do that, I'm going to have to get another one of these. If, you, if you're on the live stream, you'll see it. Another one of these microphones. I've got two of them. I'm going to have to get a third. And if I can set this up properly, I can maybe have three people in the podcast studio, 
maybe even four, and we can have a really fun time. That's the goal. So we'll see if I can get myself to that. Um, Pete says, new tires is moving up fast on my list. So Pete, you know the, the deal. When you've got a hobby, doing something you love, it's, I remember when I was playing music, they called it gas, G-A-S, gear addiction syndrome. <laughs> now in the, your case, tires, you need those legitimately. But for a lot of these things, you know, getting all these cameras and microphones, it's gear addiction syndrome, but I love doing it. It's fun. Okay, friends, I'm going to wrap this bad boy up. Um, this is episode number 230 of the John Riley Project. I will be back at you Wednesday, Cinco de Mayo, uh, Wednesday, the 5th of May at 2 p.m. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye.